0: Bowie Kala Kala Kala
1: Welcome to Women Rabbis Talk, the podcast where women rabbis talk to other women rabbis about being women rabbis. I am one of your hosts, Rabbi Emma Gottlieb, and with me is your other host, Rabbi Marcy Bellows. And Marcy, what are we thinking about
2: this week? So I'm so glad you asked, Emma. I am thinking this week about the concept of sabbatical. Yeah, this is a concept that goes all the way back to the Torah. If you take a look at Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11 and beyond, it actually is based on the concept of Shabbat, which is, of course, we work for six days, and then we rest on the seventh, we have Shabbat. And the land is also supposed to have a Shabbat, a sabbatical year. So verse 10 says, six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But in the seventh, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat of it and what they leave let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. As it talks more about sabbatical and then about the jubilee year, which is every 50 years, we learn about how people are also supposed to have rest and the clearing of all debts during this time period, the return of land to its original holder. It's actually a really beautiful way to set up a society What's relevant to us as rabbis is that some of us are fortunate enough to have in our contracts a sabbatical, which means that in our seventh year, approximately, we have a sabbatical. We have a time set aside to rest and to perhaps take the time to do the things we haven't had a chance to do because our schedules are really busy and to counteract any of the forces that have led to us feeling close to burnout or really exhausted, especially the past few years with COVID and with the, all the new technology we've had to learn and use. It's been quite a difficult few years. And I am really excited because I have a sabbatical coming up beginning in December, that will be three months. And then I'll have another three months next year and Interestingly enough, this happens to be my seventh year at my congregation. So look at that. I worked for six years and now in my seventh year, I get a sabbatical and in my eighth year as well. It'll be a chance for me to rejuvenate, to recharge my batteries, to read the books in my ever-growing pile of books that I don't have a chance to read. I'm going to see like a ton of Broadway shows. I'm going to travel. And next year when I travel, I'm going to go to South Africa and I'm going to see one of my best friends in the world, Rabbi Emma Ghalib, <laughs> which is really exciting too. So what do you think so- about the whole concept?
1: I'm so excited for you. I'm excited to see you and show you South Africa. And I'm excited for you to get the rest of it you so deeply deserve. I'm excited because I, for the first time, have a contract that has a sabbatical in it that's in my foreseeable future. So stay tuned, everyone, for that episode in a couple of years. But it's coming. It is so important. It's so important. And, and you know, my my dad is a rabbi. I grew up sort of knowing about sabbat- rabbinic sabbaticals and being in a, in a family cycle that included sabbatical travel. I think probably I was in rabbinical school before I realized that not all rabbis get sabbaticals and that not all of them get them automatically after six years or in the seventh year or in the eighth year or whatever it is. And, and it, I think it was something that I sort of assumed was a, a right for rabbis and it, it is actually much more of a privilege. And also, as you were talking about it and and talking about the burnout and all these things, I was thinking, you know, like most rabbis that I know are fighting burnout a lot sooner than seven years. And, and also, you know, seven years is, it's not like you get one automatically in the seventh year of your career. So, you know, I've been a rabbi for 12 years. This is the first time that I have a sabbatical in my near future because I was never in a congregation long enough to earn a sabbatical. So you know if you're if you're for for whatever number of reasons there's lots and lots of rabbis are in a job for 3 years and then 4 years and then 5 years and then 4 years and whatever it is. If you never get to 7 years somewhere, which not everyone is lucky enough to do, you never have a chance at a sabbatical. And then you could go 20 years as a congregational rabbi never get a sabbatical and by then you're very burnt out. I think it's a beautiful model. I love that that it draws from a a biblical model. And I think the Torah has so much wisdom for us about the need for everything to rest and have a period of rest, right? The land needs to rest, people need to rest, financial debt needs to rest, slavery needs to rest, like in different kinds of being in debt in different ways all have rest built in in the biblical system. And I love that we have this model for rabbis that says rabbis also need to rest, and yet the reality is that most rabbis probably are not accessing the rest that they need, whether it's in a sabbatical cycle or any cycle, especially now with burnout rates being so much higher than they used to be. And I think rabbi rabbi burnout was a real serious thing long before COVID. I think we feel burnt out after, you know, a few months <laughs> sometimes, you know, if, if we're not taking proper care of ourselves. So I wonder, you know, how how we ensure that more, more rabbis have access to cycles of rest and also whether the whole idea of sabbatical and rabbinic sabbaticals and what they mean and how long it takes to achieve them, like, does that need a, a review? And I don't even know how we would do that because we're all part of smaller rabbinic communities that are regulated in, in different ways. So it's not like there's one world body of rabbis that would say, you know, now everybody gets arrest after two years or four years or six months or.
2: You're absolutely right. And now that I'm thinking about it, this is my 18th year. (laughs) As a congregational rabbi, and I'm finally having a sabbatical because I'm finally in a job long enough to have one. And I mean, I was in my previous position for seven years and would have had a sabbatical, but instead I had a baby. Um, So that wasn't it. Was time off, but a maternity leave is certainly not a sabbatical.
1: It's ludicrous for a community to insinuate somehow that I'm not saying that your community (laughs) did, but if if somebody said, uh, "Oh, you're you had maternity leave, so you don't need a sabbatical." But like that's, it's not the same. It's not you, the same. And right. Nobody would say to a, a male rabbi, Oh, you took six months of daddy leave. That's the same as a sabbatical. You know, <laughs> that's true. It's
2: probably true. This is my first sabbatical that I have the privilege of experiencing. And I feel very lucky to be at a community that values the time that's needed to do this kind of recharge. I'm also really excited because. The project I want to work on for this three months is something that I've been dreaming about for 20, maybe 25 years, if not longer which is a guided Jewish meditation album. It's something I've I've led workshops on in so many different settings. And, and every time somebody says to me, when are you going to publish these? And when can we get a recording of them? And I'm like, oh, soon, soon, soon. And I've been saying soon for, you know, more than 20 years. That's something using this wonderful recording equipment that we've really put together finally and uh, have ready to go that I can make a number of tracks of and make available to the public. So I'm, uh, I'm really excited about being able to do that in the midst of the travel and learning and um, time spent with loved ones that I'll have a chance to do.
1: I'm very excited to, to hear how those come out and to promote you when they do. And also, I think it it is important to mention for our listeners who might not realize that most rabbinic sabbaticals aren't just time off either. Like we just talked about how they're meant to be this opportunity for rest and and refreshment. But most of the time when congregational rabbis take sabbatical, there is an expectation from their community that they're doing something to further their, their learning, to further their rabbinic profile portfolio, academia so so most rabbis when they go on sabbatical they have to spend at least part of that time and I imagine different rabbis have different agreements with their congregations about how much of you know what what the outcome has to be and how much of their sabbatical is meant to be spent doing it but lots of rabbis you know write books on their sabbaticals or take undertake some kind of project like what you're describing. Or go on a, a learning seminar, like go to Hartman or something like that, study for another degree, you know, do, you know, work towards a master's or a PhD or something like that. So they're not, it's not like six months of vacation. Right. Either. Right. So it, it really is, I, I think sometimes people who do know about sabbaticals have a lot of misconceptions about what a rabbinical sabbatical really is, how long it is. Um, how relaxing it may or may not actually be. and and hopefully, you know the the kinds of studying and writing that that we do on sabbaticals leaves us feeling refreshed and renewed because it's the kind of studying um, and writing that we don't have the time for in our day-to-day rabbinic work.
2: Uh, I'm also excited to be taking a writing retreat with our consultant and guest in just a few moments, Rabbi Leah Berkowitz, to just write together and have quiet time to let our gears turn the way that they can't always in an open environment. So mm-hmm. there's lots of good stuff.
0: And she'll Um, be on sabbatical.
2: Yeah. So she'll finally have a sabbatical as well. And so she will uh, be writing
1: on sabbatical. Yeah, it'll be amazing to see what she does (laughs) when she's on sabbatical, given what she can do when she's not. Um, And we're so excited to be hearing more about that in just a minute.
2: Yep. So stay with us, everybody. Thank you so much. Friends, we are so honored today to have two incredible guests with us one of whom you are very familiar with and one of whom we can't wait to get to know better. They are co-authors of a brand new book that just came out a few months ago. And we welcome to Women Rabbis Talk and Women amazing educators talk for today Rabbi Leah Berkowitz and Ricky Wolfsanaker. welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Ricky because you are new to the show we're gonna start by introducing you. While you're on the show you know introduce yourself tell us more about what you do
0: and where you teach. Sure. Uh, so my name is Ricky Wolfsanaker. The book, it's Erica, Erica is my full name and it was the name my grandmother called me and certainly this book is for my grandmother. So I wanted to make sure it was that name, but Ricky is fine for conversational purposes. I am a Hebrew school teacher. I've been a Hebrew school teacher. I think I'm about to hit my my end of my second decade Hebrew school teaching. I taught for a long time at Chicago Sinai in Chicago. I now teach at Or Shalom in Vernon Hills with uh, Rabbi Ari Margolis, who's the best person ever, and Leah is the one who told me that he would be the best person ever, so I'm very happy about that. I've been teaching there for about six years. I te- Right now, I am teaching sixth graders about life cycles. I am teaching seventh graders about Holocaust, and then next quarter, I'll do seventh graders about active meets vote, and then I also do Hebrew through movement which is, you know, where you teach them Hebrew through telling them to do things in Hebrew, in sort of Hebrew. And yeah, and they have a lot of fun with that. And then I'm also teaching Hebrew at BJBE, which is in Deerfield, and it's where both of my kids went to preschool. That's what I do right now, in addition to writing and taking care of my kids. And I came to this Really, I came to this because I was missing song sessions from my nifty days. And I came to understand that I could go teach Hebrew school and then be in their music classes. And then I could have song sessions again. And I happened to live right around the corner from Chicago Sinai at the time. So that's how I ended up there. And then even when I moved to my sub- the suburbs, I still loved that my boss. But then when she left and I was coming to the realization that if you cannot get to your temple on a Friday night, you don't belong to that temple. So then that's when we were looking for a suburban temple. And I'm so happy that Friends of Leah were already here because it's it's the best. Orshalom is the best. Anyone who lives in the Illinois area, should definitely check out Orshalom and Vernon Hills because it's a good community. And I also, I've been interested in Torah academically since college. I took a class with Alicia Ostriker, The Bible is Feminist Literature, which was fantastic. I then went to... Um, I got a master's in English at UIC, and I did my master's thesis on a story in Judges. And then I went to UChicago's Divinity School to get that, to further my Jewish biblical education. And
2: what university did you go to? Brandeis University with Leah. Go Judges! (laughs) Go Judges! We
3: We (laughs) met
0: within the first week of our freshman year. And
3: I was about to say we lived on the same freshman hall, but we didn't. You just sort of moved into our freshman hall.
0: <laughs> I, I did technically live on her freshman hall, but I don't think I slept many nights away from it.
1: I just want to apologize to our listeners who, like me, feel othered every single time we have a guest <laughs> who <loves> a brandy <laughs> and Marcy needs to spend five minutes of podcast time talking about Brandeis <laughs> and go I know that it stems from my own deep place of Brandeis envy. But <laughs> I'm just saying, dear listeners, I'm sure you share both my envy and slight annoyance at this. But go judges. And um, well, on.
0: My, my 14-year-old daughter, like up until the last couple years, we tease her. We're like, oh, you have to go to Brandeis. Your legacy, you know, we, we both went. You have to go. But we were mostly teasing her. But now she's like, well, the only place I can go is Brandeis because that's where all the Jews are. Mm. All right. Sounds
1: good. Yeah. Yeah. Also, just a shout out to Queen's University in Canada. When there's a time where there is another rabbi who came from that fabulous Ivy League quality institution, I would I'd love to invite you to be on the podcast so that we can shout out Queens together and be really obnoxious about it.
2: Yes. Challenge accepted. Ooh. <laughs> Isn't that where Anne
3: of Green Gables went to college in the book? I think she goes to. Green I think college. so. Yeah. Probably anyway. because it's
1: one of the oldest universities in Canada, and my guess is that it makes sense that yeah. that would yeah. be true. Yeah. So, and
3: I just want to say also for the non uh, Brandesian listeners, the Go Judges thing is kind of a ironic. Um, uh, Elisa Copel, who's been on with me a few times, um, we've always say that to each other uh, when Brandeis comes up, even though I don't think we ever said it during our time at Brandeis um it is not a school we do have some really great division three sports teams but we weren't exactly a school where like you went to a football game and painted your face blue so the go judges is somewhat ironic
2: and I recently tried to type go judges on a friend's Facebook post and it came out go nudges which felt very (laughs) Jewish go oh, nudges one other shout out to rabbi ari margolis who is i believe first cousins with one of my best friends jessica and so um he's practically mishpacha he's he's family so
1: he's really a terrific, and he terrific was, guy and he was in my year in israel so he's he's a, a beloved classmate so
2: so definitely ze- zero degrees of separation yeah. all right so rabbi leah berkowitz Tell us, again, about yourself, just in case we have listeners who have not met you before.
3: Hey, okay. Hi, I'm Rabbi Leah Berkowitz. I use she, her pronouns. I go by Rabbi Berkowitz professionally, but in this conversation, I'll be Leah. Let's see. What, what else was I? So I? I went to Brandeis with Ricky. We met pretty much the first week of college, ended up in a group together that ended up living together our junior and senior years, and also... We found out, we were looking at each other's, you know how you used to like fun tack pictures to the to the cinder blocks in your dorm. We both looked and we both had the same picture, which was uh, the Ahava sign in Israel that you have like the whole teen tour, or, like it gets in the letters and you pose in there. We both had that picture with different people in it and we realized we were on the same Nifty in Israel trip. We weren't on the same bus though, in the no degrees of separation ricky was on a bus with somebody from my youth group named alexis scott hi alexis if you're listening and we both thought we both thought they were awesome so we found out that we had probably been on the same trip which meant it was like 99 percent certain we had met and ricky believes that we fell asleep on each other at a
1: lecture at in prague that's Mm. beautiful wow and i love that that's taken on like the quality of mythology like Ricky yes. believes we fell asleep on each other like, that's the narrative that we're going with <laughs> right right because we both remember the falling memory. asleep we just don't
3: remember if yes. it was on each other <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 leah remind us of some of the synagogues in which you have worked
3: yes so i started out at judeo reform congregation in durham north carolina which is where i met the Margolises, Ari and Rachel, um, who were at Beth in Raleigh at the time. So so yeah, so I worked at Judea Reform Congregation in North Carolina. I was I taught day school at Gan Academy in Massachusetts. I was a solo rabbi at Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie
2: and now I'm in year five at Congregation Colamy in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And right before we started recording, we we realized this is Leah's third official time on the podcast but fifth time total because there were two other less formal times she's appeared on the show once at a URJ biennial uh, when we were doing lots of quick interviews with people and once in our one of our Facebook live interviews uh, over a summer. And so, you know, we had joked with her and with Rabbi Elisa Capel that we were giving them correspondent status and we're thinking that maybe Rabbi Leah Berkowitz will be like a literature correspondent and maybe we'll bring in some book reviews. So if you have any suggestions of books you think that Rabbi Leah Berkowitz should review for our podcast, Podcast that are relevant to women rabbis uh, or the women rabbi or feminist Jewish experience, please let us know. That sounds like fun, and I realized I'm
3: thinking in terms in SNL terms. I'm like, I want my five timers jacket. <laughs>
1: yeah, you. Yeah, we we do actually have a women rabbis talk swag store. Uh, our listeners may have have heard in our ads about it. How to order our swag. So I'm sure we can come up with specialized swag for. Yeah specialized guests.
2: Hey y'all, it's Marcy, and I am excited to tell you all about the new merch that we have available for you to buy to support us as we work to make our show more accessible and inclusive. We want to create transcripts as well as closed caption videos of all of our episodes. And so to support us, you can go and check out all of our really awesome and cute merch at bonfire.com slash women dash rabbis dash talk dash swag and check it out and support us now thanks so we can't wait to hear how this book came about yeah so um it's interesting that
3: you mentioned the the 2019 biennial which is really like one of the last big events of the before times the last time many of us were in the same place or i guess in the same city um So I had for a long time, um, I had for a long time wanted to uh, do a a midrash collection, particularly actually about biblical women. And I had started it during my time in North Carolina. And then when I moved on to some other positions, it it got put in the drawer because I was so, so busy all the time. But I really wanted to do a collection of midrash about women in the Bible. And I also was interested in uh, lifting up more stories of lesser known biblical characters or lesser uh, addressed parshiot. Because if you're a rabbi or an educator, a lot of times you'll be like, I need a teaching story for this Parsha and there isn't one because, you know, it's in Leviticus or whatever. So anyway, I had already been thinking about that for many, many years. When I was at Biennial, my colleague Rabbi Heather Miller, a shout out class of 2008, she was like, oh, weren't you going to write a book of Parsha stories? And I was like, yeah, I should probably get on that. And then on my way back I stayed with Ricky because Ricky lives in Buffalo Grove and the biennial was in Chicago Ricky was saying uh, uh, and I'll let her explain more about uh, the details of what she was trying to do Ricky was was saying you know we should write a book of stories about Bible stories um, because I think we both need it and it needs to be in the world and we started it's actually I think that was the only time we talked about it in person everything else had to be done virtually but we like sat on the couch in the basement um, I think while your uh, kids were putting up holiday decorations and (laughs) <laughs> and wrote a little outline. So Ricky, you want to say more about what what you were how you came to that moment?
0: Sure. First of all, both of us have always had a strong interest in writing and have shared that interest with each other. And even in writing Midrash because we um, one of the things we did was go together to a writing uh, a, a writing workshop at the Yiddish Book Center in uh, Massachusetts. Um, And I think we were both working on Midrashi stories at the time, not stuff that would be in this book. But And then as a Hebrew school teacher, I was mostly teaching for the first many years, I was mostly teaching um, stories from the Tanakh that I started with post-Torah. So it was Samson and, and, and it was Deborah and it was prophets. And then I was realizing that my kids didn't know the Torah stories, so I would go back to those. But there wasn't, I was teaching fourth grade and up and there wasn't much out there that was appealing to them. And then I'm getting students, especially by the time I started Ora Shalom and had Lila Margolis and other students like her in my class who are voracious readers and get really attached to, to the books that they read and the series they read. I wanted, I had been writing like my own classroom materials because I didn't like what was out there, but I, I really wanted for there to be something for the kids that really engaged them as readers as well as in in a Jewish space, and as part of their Jewish education. So the title is Maybe It Happened This Way, Bible Stories Reimagined. I mean, the title is, this is Midrash. This is us interpreting the Torah stories in our way with the messages that we think we find in them or want to emphasize in them. One of our purposes was to engage the kids in knowing that this is one suggestion and that Judaism is a religion of suggestions, of maybe, of this is the best interpretation I've got, or this is the interpretation that seems to fit the moment or the situation, but it's not the only way. Um, And I think that's especially important in A, in Reform spaces where the kids, you know, I'm not trying to sit here and tell them that the big bang didn't happen, obviously, and I want them to know that that's not what I'm sitting here and trying to tell them to uh, about Judaism, because some of them don't. Some of them are so surrounded in our world with, religion is this one specific version in which someone on high tells you that, and and therefore, if you're rejecting that, you're rejecting religion. I want them to know that is not the case. They do not have to reject religion in order to still be a science-minded person or a, a rational member of the 21st century they are not little anymore. They are not just wanting to parrot back stories and draw pictures of rainbows, which, I, hey, I love drawing pictures of rainbows, no slamming on that. But they, they are pushing back, they are questioning, and they need to know that that is part of Judaism, that that is what they are absolutely allowed to do, encouraged to do in this space of Jewish education. I love that your title... Echoes for
1: for me and for others who are familiar with with rabbinic writing, the concept of devara which means another interpretation when the rabbis and the sages are are mm. interpreting Torah, there's one opinion given and then there's another opinion given, and they often introduce the other opinions with devara and this is kind of a contemporary way of saying. Maybe it happened this way, right? Like, or it could be this. And I love the the spotlighting of that authentic part of our Jewish tradition that our rabbis were not, didn't hand us literature of one opinion. Our rabbis handed us diversity and spectrum and options and tvarim achirim And uh, and I, I love that that echoes in the title of your book and, um, and that you're instilling that value um, and that understanding in, in your readers. So you've shared a little bit with us about the inspiration for the book and how it came into the world. You've had phenomenal reviews so far. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what need you were responding to when you envisioned this book and when you were writing this book
3: so for me this book was a really long process I think for both of us it was I feel like we've been working on this book as long as we've known each other in rabbinical school I took a class on midrash with Rabbi Norman Cohen which was amazing and it was you know it was an elective I I took a class with him like the standard class on midrash but he also taught a class in writing midrash and I just I fell in love with that Unfortunately my final project from that was on Lot's daughter so I couldn't put that in this book because that's kind of a that's a very uh, not for children story. I ended up being really interested throughout my my rabbinical education in stories of of biblical women and ended up doing part of my thesis on the midwives in in Egypt um which did make it into this book. And when I was first a rabbi in Judea Reform Congregation in North Carolina, I had a student uh, who is now about to graduate from medical school. So I'm just very, uh, shout out to Tyne Tyson. So she came up to me at the end of religious school tefillah. She must have been 12 years old. And she said, I don't know why we bother to put the matriarchs in the Amidah. They don't do anything. And I had this moment of like, I need a resource for this student to know that there are are women in the Bible, including the matriarchs, but also other women who do things? I want them to know about the midwives. I want them to know about the daughters of Zilafichad. I want them to know. I want them to know these stories. And I went and looked for a book of this nature, and there is one. There's Lilith's Ark by Deborah Bowden Cohen, which uh, is, I believe, all the women of Genesis as teenagers. So that was a great start, but it it wasn't what I felt we needed. And I actually found recently, like there was a Facebook memory that said, "Has anybody written a book about?" Uh, Jewish women for t- for teens. If not, I have to write one. So I started that, and that again process ended up in the drawer. But realizing that we we needed we needed stories to tell in the classroom, we needed stories to tell on the BIMA, and we needed materials to give to the Tyne Tysons, the Lila Margolises, and and also sometimes we have students who aren't. Uh, engaging with traditional religious school and needs something else to have a resource to say, this is not a child's book of Bible stories. This is something you can really sink your teeth into and talk about with uh, with an adult. Hopefully a book actually, uh, I dreamed of it as a book that that parents and children steal from each other, uh, that they both want to read. Because uh, we heard from, from Rachel Margolis that when the book arrived at, at their house, Lila immediately stole it and has not given it back. <laughs> so Rachel has not had a chance yeah. to read it yet.
0: I, I, I gave her one. I, you know, oh. I was going to donate one to the temple anyway. So I just, I gave her first, first look at the one I was going to donate to the temple. So okay. hopefully she's been able to look at it now, unless one of her other children stole it, which is entirely possible. And, and for me, uh, I really, I mean, honestly, I was getting jealous. The kids are coming in. I like Harry Potter as much as the next person, but they're obsessed with Harry Potter and then they're obsessed with Percy Jackson. And I'm like, I come on, Judaism has some good stories. I wanted them to know those stories. So that was, uh, that was a large part of it for me.
2: I love Midrash, I love teaching Midrash. They're so creative, they bring so much life and vitality to the text that sometimes isn't there. But sometimes there's pushback from Mm -hmm. people who see the text as unchangeable, as immutable, as they don't even realize they're kind of being fundamentalist about it or that Judaism doesn't require that of us. But for those who feel like we don't have permission to change the text in the way that Mm -hmm. you do so freely, how do you answer them?
3: So this is interesting because when we were preparing for our, our book launch with somebody from the publisher, she mentioned that my last book, Queen Vashti's Comfy Pants, got a little pushback from a more traditional Jewish community because it strayed from the story and made Vashti in some ways a hero. The interesting thing about that is that the reason Vashti's not a quote unquote hero in the Jewish tradition is all midrash. In the story, she's just somebody she says no, she gets banished. It's like sort of morally neutral what she's done. She's she's a, she's a straw woman. There's all these midrash that make her just unmitigatingly evil or gross, like she has a tail or some say she had male genitalia, you know, that she had leprosy and, and so she didn't want to be exposed. And by the way, even the the idea of her being naked is not in the original text. So these are all things that are midrash that have now become so superimposed on the story that we think of them as, as fact. So people were understandably hostile to this story of Vashti as sort of this feminist hero. And there's actually, there's a lot of those kinds of stories out there for adults. So there are, there's already been that conversation. There are think pieces on it. But meanwhile, the idea of Vashti as evil was also a midrash. So it's just as likely that she was, I mean, probably not in comfy pants, because I think that's anachronistic, but like, it's just as likely that she was an introvert who didn't feel like going to a party than that she had a tail. So I think, uh, and I'm sure we could do that for almost every story in the book, that people could say, well, X, Y, and Z. And we could say, well, but the stories that you know and love are also a lot of times shaded with midrash. So, for instance, um, I did a story on Abraham smashing the idols. That's a story that is midrash that most Jewish people think is in the Torah. That's how ingrained it is, and that's how much. And I realize it's because that's how much people identify with it. It's somebody rebelling against their parent.
1: I've always felt felt that the reason that people, that so many people think that that particular Abraham midrash is part of Torah, is that it is in every single children's textbook for religious school in America from like the 1940s and 50s and 60s and whatever. So an entire generation of American Jewry across denominations were taught that story as children mm-hmm. in their Bible studies classes. And, and the reason I'm bringing it up is, is how powerful that you have now created this text That you will be giving to children and not necessarily that we want them to misunderstand that these stories are the stories in the torah but the power of the texts that we give our children our jewish children and the way that they are internalized as torah and as part of jewish tradition and that even when all of those jewish adults say i hated religious school I'm sending my kids anyway, but I hated religious school, even when the experience of the education doesn't have power, the texts have power. And and so I think it's amazing that you're putting these, adding these texts um, into the conversation.
3: Yes. And I'm thinking of like a particular orange textbook that I had as a third grader. And then later I was the assistant, um, shout out to Beverly Schoenberg. My third grade teacher used this orange Bible stories textbook. And when I was her teaching assistant, when I was 15, we're still using that book, and that has the smashing of the idols in it. What I did want to say is this book, you know, I don't know who wrote those books, I'd have to, those other books, I, the Orange Book, I'd have to look it up, but it's a very like broad brush of the stories. Both of us come to this with a background, both Jewishly and academically, where we've actually read these stories line by line, where we're familiar with a lot of the traditional midrash. When we're doing something different, it's with the knowledge of what the story originally was and all the different, not all, but a lot of the different interpretations of it. So it's loving and it's also its also with some of that knowledge in our back pocket. We're not just making stuff up, though we do say in the book that there's a line in the book where we say, you're going to look at this and say, are you making this up? And we'll say, yes, yes, we are.
0: I would, and as an aside, it has been my mission as a Hebrew school teacher to turn out children who did not hate going to Hebrew school. There have been people in my life who I know who either permanently turned from Judaism or temporarily turned from Judaism that I'm like, I don't want them to leave. I, I want them to stay and know that this is a place for them. So that's been my mission as a Hebrew school teacher. And yes, that story was in my elementary school Hebrew school book too.
1: Everybody, I love that you're reminding us of the learning that goes into midrashim not just the creativity that authentic midrashim are a fusion of imagination and education um and interpretation and of an educated an educated guess an educated hypothesis yeah mm-hmm.
3: Is that a thing? Yeah.
1: That's a thing yeah and um yeah, an educated hypothesis sure
3: and we also, we talked about this, in uh, we've talked about this before, that a lot of times what I use as an example, and this is funny because until recently I hadn't actually ever read any real Jane Austen. I'd seen like all the movies and and I'd seen a lot of the, ad- I read and seen a lot of the adaptations and I finally had to read Pride and Prejudice because I realized I'd read so many adaptations and I needed to know if they were accurate. When I'm trying to explain Midrash to people, I often use those adaptations. And of course, this is a very like uh, time-specific reference that the movie Clueless is a midrash on the story Emma, on the Jane Austen book Emma. It's not the story of Emma, but it does hit a lot of the same points. Recently, there was a great movie called Fire Island, which imagined Pride and Prejudice as a as an all-male rom-com. You know, there are these, again, loving interpretations that are making these stories relevant and also saying, isn't this a great story? This story is so good that we just keep telling it
0: with different characters in different settings. Do you mind if I actually go back to the pushback on doing Midrash for a moment? Because I really, I, I feel pretty passionately about the fact that the project of, of doing Midrash, of looking at these stories again and again from your new, you know, a contemporary perspective or from a personal perspective or whatever, you need it. The whole project, the whole project of Judaism or any any religion, any engagement with any story falls apart if you can't do that. If, you know, if you don't make Clueless, if you don't make Fire Island, people f- will forget that Jane Austen exists, which they should never do because she's lovely. And if you don't keep interpreting the the stories in the text, it becomes a dead dry text that nobody cares about anymore. Mm-hmm. And you can, and it is, inter- it, it is important. I do think like the twin impulses in Judaism of tradition, 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 let's reinterpret, let's figure it out, let's, I think we need both of them, but I think it can be incredibly easy to dismiss the let's reinterpret, let's change, let's, let's even make ourselves compatible with a contemporary world because that feels like, oh, that's less Jewish or that's less powerful. And I really genuinely think it's not. I genuinely think you need both having equal power and being in constant conversation with each other. And if if we don't keep making these stories relevant, they won't be. So that's that's what I say when people want to say, hey, you can't change these stories.
2: Well, look at uh, the success of And Juliet that has been touring this brand new show on Broadway, which, you know, isn't just another like West Side Story is another retelling of Romeo and Juliet in a whole new way. Emma saw it. I'm interested in seeing it. The soundtrack is really fun and is using pop songs by boy bands and britney spears and people like that as midrash on the the story of you want to say anything emma go ahead tell you
1: i do because here's the thing not only is Anne juliet midrash on romeo and juliet but it is restorative justice in action because it is the entire playbook so not the entire playbook but it is the, the music is the playbook of a particular songwriter who has written for every famous boy band, every famous girl band, all the pop stars, you name them. They've sung at least all these hit songs that you know and love that you don't know were written by this guy because you think they were written by Britney Spears and whoever, but they were written by this guy. So fine. So he's he has taken his playbook and repurposed it. And some of the songs are... Songs that when they came out as pop songs were like actually sort of horrible and damaging to young people and the way that they view themselves and and each other and and all the stuff. And they've repurposed them in the show to be like empowering of women and empowering of queer people. And while I was watching it, my mind was exploding because I was like, this is restorative justice in musical pop culture form, and that's amazing. And I don't know if anyone has like written that article in the New York Times yet, but somebody should write it because it's amazing and I will get off my high horse now and we can keep talking about Midrash.
0: I didn't know about this musical either, but I was just gonna say like, even Romeo and Juliet was William Shakespeare taking from other sources to tell a story. Like we do, so that's the other thing. And we've we've talked about Midrash as fan fiction which it is. And fan fiction can be incredibly dismissed, but so and you know, I'm a writer, like you're a writer. Everything is fan fiction. Everything is is borrowing. And contemporary Midrash is also
1: restorative justice because we are giving voices to characters who didn't have voices. And we are calling out pieces of text that need to be called out and calling in points of view that can be called in. And so it's all its all restorative justice and it's all beautiful and I'm so happy about it.
3: I did not know this existed. I'm really happy this existed. I also think, um Marcy, that West Side Story is another great example that probably is a little more universal than Emma and and Clueless, Um, but West Side Story as a midrash. But even every cinematic interpretation of either Romeo and Juliet or West Side Story, like there was a new one and they made new decisions, And even though it's the same story. And that's also midrash in a way, and it's also true to the original in a way. So I'm really excited that that musical exists. And I feel like it was made, that's one of those things where I'm like, I feel like it was made just for the people on this call. <laughs> but yeah. I'm sure there are other people enjoying it too.
2: And all the um, Jews, all the Jews behind the scenes who also mm-hmm. you know, probably were thinking midrashically when they created it.
1: It's brilliant. It's also like Shakespeare's wife, it's her story. It's her, she's editing his story. And she's like, maybe it happened this way. <laughs>
0: That's amazing.
2: Okay, so we've talked so much about your book. We would love to hear a selection from it.
3: It was so hard to pick something to read for today. Uh, last time we did a reading, it, uh, there was something that went with that week's Torah portion. But I wanted to make sure I wanted to make sure we did something with women. But this actually is based on one of my favorite traditional midrashim which is that, and I'm wondering actually if I have given this before in one of my other uh, conversations with you with a favorite Jewish text, there's the question of how did the women of Israel have timbrels when they got to the shores of the sea? Because they didn't even have bread. (laughs) They left in a hurry. They just had the clothes on their backs. Why would they have timbrels? And Rabbi Yishmael says, it's because they were so confident that there would be a miracle that they packed this. So this was sort of this sign of hope and confidence and faith in God. The interesting thing though, is that I felt that didn't entirely answer the question because it was, where did they get them in the first place? Why did they have them? Did they make them in anticipation of this, of this happening? Did they carry them? Did they have them with them for generations and they've been hiding them? Have they been using them that time? So it just, it, it raised all these other questions and I, And this actually, this one actually started as a sermon on that midrash, because I loved the idea that they had all of these timbrels with them, that they'd maybe carried them from Canaan in the first place. They'd had them for 400 years, and they'd been using them the whole time so that they would be ready for this moment. So I imagined, and this is another, uh, an interesting thing about, I think about this story versus some of the other stories you know, some of the stories we take characters that you know are lesser known characters, named characters that are in the Bible. And this is the character we actually imagined as a background character in the, in the in the Bible story. So this is from the story called Dancing on the Shores of the Sea. And what it imagines, this scene imagines is that when this young woman reaches a certain age, her mother wakes her up in the middle of the night and she goes out with all these other women to dance by the light of the moon. It's like a full moon celebration. I'd never seen my grandmother play outside of our small mud house. She told me how her own great-grandmother had carried the timbrel with her all the way from Canaan, singing songs of hope, adventure, and new beginnings, back when Egypt was spread out before the starving Hebrews like a banquet of possibilities. As the dream of life in Egypt crumbled into a nightmare, her grandmother hid the timbrel in our mud walls. If Pharaoh knew we had even one simple pleasure, she worried, he would find a way to take it from us. But sometimes I could convince my grandmother to play for me. Whenever her stiff fingers struck the drum, my tired body moved without thinking, swaying slightly to the beat, my arms aching and outstretched overhead, turning in circles as the sound swelled. Now I saw that others had kept their instruments too, long after everything valuable had been sold for grain or used to bribe a taskmaster. All around me, women were drumming in time to my grandmother's beat, joining the circle of dancers. A melody rose up over the drumming. Someone called out a verse and the women repeated it, splitting into harmonies. It felt as if our song could reach the moon itself. God is my strength and my song. God will be my deliverance. Who is that singing? I asked between verses. Miriam, daughter of Yocheved, my mother said. She leads this celebration every month like the generations of women before her. I stared, puzzled at this joyful gathering of slaves. What are we celebrating? My mother leaned in close to speak over the din, that we can still make music, that we can still feel joy, that, and that even the Egyptians can't take those things away from us.
1: Wow. Oh, you mm. give me chills.
2: That's so mm. beautiful.
1: Thank you. It's and Ricky, what's your favorite piece? <laughs>
0: Well, I ended up getting very attached to Miriam in the Miriam Saves Her Brother story. I just didn't know where the story was going to begin with and I ended up really, uh, really invested in who she was as a person as she was coming out of my, I was gonna say pen, but I guess that's not right, my keyboard, sometimes my pen. So I thought I would read um, a little bit from the middle. This is the story in which Miriam is engaged in getting her brother out of the house, getting the baby, out so that the soldiers don't kill him. And in this, she's actually the one who brought the news that the soldiers were on their way to start killing Hebrew babies. She and her mother put him on the river and then Miriam follows and sees where he goes. So this is, she has seen that the princess is taking him in. The princess has sent her her maids off and is now playing with the baby. Miriam watched the princess for a few minutes, cooing and fussing at her brother, tickling his toes and nuzzling his cheeks. Whatever act she was putting on for her attendance, she clearly was happy to have a baby arrive at her doorstep. You can come out of there, girl. I wish to speak to you, the princess called, and Miriam was startled to realize that the princess was addressing her. Slowly, Miriam crept out of the reeds, though she dared not approach too closely. Perhaps the princess would do away with her instead of the baby. She'd be harder to drown, though. She could fight back. Miriam planted her feet hard in the riverbed, and stopped out of arm's reach of the princess. The princess didn't seem to mind. She didn't take her eyes off the baby, really. She just said, quite plainly, can I assume that your mother is available to nurse this baby? Miriam swallowed hard. Her toes shifted in the sand as she tried to work out what was happening here. The way the princess asked her question, the way she'd responded to her older attendant, she must know, mustn't she? She must know where this baby came from. "'Yes,' Miriam said, a frog stuck in her throat. "'The princess gave a short nod. "'Go fetch her. "'She will stay in the palace as my servant "'and tend to this baby for me.' "'Miriam turned to go, "'still unable to process all that had happened. "'But a few feet away, she turned. "'The princess was still cooing and singing to her brother. "'Princess, I... you... "'I really did want a baby,' she answered, "'almost to herself. "'I will be happy to have him here.' She lifted him out of the basket then, held him aloft and smiled at him. The baby smiled back. Miriam felt a stab of jealousy. I shall call him Moses, the princess said. Another small surge of jealousy, that this Egyptian princess should have the privilege of naming Miriam's baby brother, Yocheved's son. But as long as he stayed alive, it hardly mattered.
1: So excited to hear the rest of these stories have you gotten the book yet in south africa not that i'm aware of okay (laughs) we mostly don't get jewish books in south africa unless we order them from overseas and when they when they go like super mega popular then they might make their way into a bookstore here but pretty rare
3: we have to work hard just to get it in bookstores here too (laughs) (laughs)
1: But I will happily provide the address of our shul for anyone who would like to donate copies of this or any other contemporary Jewish book to Hmm. the South African progressive community. Please be in touch and I will be happy to let you know how to do that. We'll happily accept them.
2: That's great. And I, uh, Leah, I already told you this, but I ordered copies for all of our fourth through seventh graders to study in the spring. Uh, a few of the midrashim, and hopefully they'll be inspired to create some of their own once they see how uh, delightful the act can be, so.
3: Yes, and one of the wonderful things about sort of this, uh, one of the wonderful things about us sort of all getting sucked into Zoom in the last few years is that it's made author visits really easy, so if you ever want us to come visit your classroom, Um, I've actually been able to do it while I am in my synagogue with my own Hebrew school going on. So it's really, that's really awesome. That's fabulous.
2: Thank you so much for those wonderful thoughts on your book. We have a segment in each episode called Ask the Rabbi. This is going to be Ask the Learned Jew. (laughs) This question comes from dear friend Jackie McCowan. What do you wish your congregation or movement emphasized more or were more interested in? Is there an issue, a topic, something you wish was more at the forefront, I would imagine, than it
0: is? I mean for me I'm I'm so happy with yes, Reform Judaism in general, but my congregation specifically The only thing I could even circle around is, I mean, Orshalom is such a wonderful community and people are so strongly involved. And I would love to see that people who are reformed Jews, whatever space they're in, understand that that you are still a full Jew. This is not Judaism light. And also that your temple or your whatever, wherever you engage with your Jewish life, it's a, it's a community project. It's not a service you're paying for mm. so that, but I honestly major shout out to Shalom. It's, it's absolutely wonderful congregation. The whole community is wonderful. Great answer.
3: Can I just acknowledge that it's amazing to hear a congregant speak that is like completely satisfied. <laughs> that's you know especially in the last few years that's that's and i think ever that's not really
0: that's not really typical we have to complain about things or the evil eye will think things are going too well for us and and we'll screw things up so you know
3: Mm -hmm. yeah in horror um one of my one of the first programs i i designed for my first synagogue was in response to uh an older gentleman's criticism and he uh after it was over he called my office and I picked up the phone and he said, I wanted you to know I am 85% satisfied. And and then he launched into all of his criticisms. And I was like, I'm going to take that as just a huge <laughs> win. And I just wanted to okay. point out, Point out that um, so when Ricky uh, was planning her wedding, which I had the privilege, that was one of the first weddings I co officiated at. So I le- I was spending the summer learning Sheva Brachot and Ricky was spending the summer planning her wedding. At one point, I don't know if this was an email or a call, but you said to me, you know, it's actually harder to be a Reformed Jew because I went to my rabbi and he handed me all these books and told me to plan my wedding ceremony. Whereas if I had been Orthodox, I would have gone there. They would have said, show up on this day, make sure you've been to the mikvah and I'll be in charge of everything. And I wish—I mean, I wish we had more congregants and teachers like Ricky. But I think it's all—and the, re- the reason I say that is not just because she's awesome, but because she understands. I like this idea. Of this is the—this is a community project. This is something that we do together. It's not a fee-for-service. It's not a country club. It's—it's it's an opportunity to create something. And it's not light. It's progressive, and that's a different thing. And we have to work just as hard to be progressive. So, yeah, and, and for me, what I'm, what I'm feeling a lot of in, in relation to that is that, you know, a lot of us, a lot of our synagogues, in, especially in the last few years during COVID, but just in general with demographic, demographics shifting and attitudes towards affiliation shifting, like we've really just been focused on survival. And I was recently in a class with um, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who's an amazing uh, Orthodox scholar and theologian, and we were talking about this struggle for survival, and he goes, survival for what? I am still not sure exactly what he meant by that, but I sort of took that as, what is it that we're actually trying to do and why don't we make sure that that's what we're putting forward? So for me, a lot of that is, I think that there's so much that's beautiful about Judaism in terms of study, in terms of worship, in terms of building community. You know, I have this wonderful core group of people in my synagogue who participate in that. And then I have a lot of people who, and in a small congregation, I think you have a higher percentage of people who are actually really involved. But I think there's always still still those people on the periphery saying, you know, I'm not getting anything out of being part of the synagogue. And there's always sort of that question of, well, are you participating? Are you putting something into it? And it can't all be about marketing. (laughs) It can't all be about, you know, it's not all about gimmicks. Um, or anything like like that. So to to be able to say like, hey, why don't you come and study Torah? Why don't you come and study Midrash or Talmud? Because when we do that, even though you know maybe we barely get a minion to do that uh, each time we we assemble, th- I feel like those people like we're really, it's really juicy. Like we're really getting into it, and there's so much there. If you don't partake of that you don't build those relationships with each other. You don't build those relationships with your clergy and you don't build your relationships with the text. So it's, I I forget, I think it was Rabbi Elliott Dorff said something along the lines of like, you can't step up to bat for the first time in baseball and expect to hit a home run. You've got to like play pretty regularly to occasionally hit a home run. And our team, just our local team just uh, lost the World Series. So that's on my mind. Anyway, but just this idea that I I would love it if people were more engaged in Jewish learning and Jewish activity in a, you know, in in a meaningful way so that we could all do this together.
1: Love that. Thank you. We are going to move to Questionnaire Mahair, which is our rapid fire question and answer segment. Leah has already given us her questionnaire me responses. So, Ricky, you're up to bat, as it were, to kick the can down the road on the baseball metaphors. So, uh, Ricky, are you ready? I'm going to do my best. It's, It's super easy. You don't have to think too hard. Just whatever comes to you. So, Ricky, who was your first woman rabbi, either in your home synagogue or that you were first
0: aware of? I, I am trying to think about it and I don't, uh, I don't remember ever thinking women couldn't or weren't rabbis, but I think when I let, when I graduated high school and you know effectively left my home temple, which by the way, was a wonderful place and is still has the head rabbi was the um, second rabbi when I was a kid and he's wonderful. His name is Rabbi Dan Cohen of Shari Tofio, Israel. In South Orange, New Jersey. I believe when I graduated, our senior rabbi left. Rabbi Cohen became the senior rabbi. And I believe the next assistant rabbi was a female rabbi. So she wasn't like mine, but she was my family's. And then, you know, Brandeis had female rabbis and female, future female rabbis all over the place. Go judges. Um, yeah. It's
3: actually two of two of the people that lived in our sweet junior and senior years are are now rabbis. <laughs> Tell
1: us about a woman who inspires you, can be Jewish or otherwise.
0: Well, I did. I dedicated this book to my grandma Sally. Um my grandma Sally, she passed away when my a week before my first child was born, which was extremely painful. But she was just she was First of all, absolutely everybody knew my grandmother. Everybody, she was um, a first grade teacher and then a guidance counselor in her town. She was also a member of Hadassah on the board of her temple, on the board of the public library in her town. Everywhere we went with my grandmother, you know, some, we would always run into people who knew her. And it even extended to, I said, we are the only people with our last name. A few years ago, I helped my cousin edit a a book she was writing about, it was a fictional. Uh, a novelization of like a Mahjong world. So I was in the, the acknowledgments of her book. She was, and understand my grandmother lived her entire life in like North Jersey. And my cousin is also from, you know, lives in North Jersey. She was in Ohio on a book tour and somebody came up to her and said, I noticed this person, Erica Wolfsaneker in your acknowledgments. Could she possibly be related to Sally Wolfsaneker in Ohio? And it was because her sister-in-law had once taught with my grandmother back in New Jersey. So the power of like, everybody knew her because she brought so much light to the people around her. She was always smiling. She was always joyful. She was, she very much valued being a trooper. So for instance, the first time my mother-in-law met her was when they came out to Chicago to visit us. And my grandmother, she loves her like her urban stuff. She loved New York City. Coming to Chicago, she wanted to do all the things in a city. I was, you know, we were 22 years old. We did not have any money. I was not, I didn't understand the bus system yet. So we just walked everywhere. So we walked my grandmother from our apartment to the Art Institute and then back up to our neighborhood to go to dinner. And then we walked up to Second City to see a show where you sit on tiny little seats at tiny little tables. The whole time, my grandmother had a fantastic time. And it was a little bit rainy that day. It wasn't really the nicest weather. And I remember my mother-in-law just being like so impressed that, oh, she didn't complain once. And she was always, always reading she was always, always learning. She loved the theater, she loved, and she was certainly one of the first people who read to me constantly. And that, that impulse, she would tell me that only, interesting people never get bored because interesting people are interested in everything. And she was interested in everything. And when I was wow. in grad school, she would be the first person I'd call after class to say, guess what I learned today? So that her spirit is definitely something I want to keep in the world to the extent that I can. I complain a lot more.
1: She sounds amazing. Do you have a favorite Jewish character from a book,
0: movie, or TV show? I mean, it's hard to say because I just assume all the characters I like are Jewish. (laughs) And sometimes I'm right. I mean, does Jon Stewart count? He's an actual person, not a character, but he's also, I think he's both of our husbands. Um, You know, we we, we both want to be married to Jon Stewart.
1: Ricky, is there a Jewish text Teaching or value that inspires you or that informs your life?
0: I mean, so many all the time. I think, I think, right? I think Midrash is the value, the, the value of always questioning, the value of always. I, I tell my students all the time, like, we took a whole bunch of arguments and put them in a book and called it holy. Um, and that's, I think, the thing that informs me the most that that, that, that is that. a holy act.
1: Ugh, I love that. And uh, this last question is for you and for Leah because she gets to answer this one because it'll be an update from last time we chatted to her. So uh, first, Ricky, and then Leah, what are you thinking about these days?
0: Anti-Semitism, a lot. Um, I just read uh, People Love Dead Jews by Dara Horn and also All the Things Happening in the World. And I'm teaching a Holocaust class for the first time. So that's on my mind a
3: lot. I want to echo Ricky's shout-out to People Love Dead Jews as that... Book and it's really hard to recommend it to people who haven't heard of it because it sounds horrible and is one of the best books I've ever read. I love Dara Horn, whatever she does, but um, uh, I, it's very rare that a book on Judaism can make me think differently about Judaism and I just felt like every chapter completely blew my mind. Um, and it made me go watch The Merchant of Venice, which I had never... Um, seen before and ironically is not taught in the introduction to Shakespeare at Brandeis University. Actually this is one thing that I'm still thinking about from that book even though I read it like six months ago which is Merchant of Venice was supposed to be a comedy and that really is upsetting to me. On that happy note... Well, if you need a, a happier thing, well, I don't know if this is a happier thing for congregational rabbis, but I'm thinking a lot about how to get our people back in the building since we've been hybrid and we moved during the pandemic. So trying to figure out how to get people to feel like the physical space is their home again, even though we now have this wonderful technology that connects us from all
2: over the world. That's a big thing is to mm-hmm. feel motivated to come back and enjoy the ease with which they can still be there like it's yeah. still wonderful as opposed to not coming at all. <laughs> it's wonderful yeah. that they are choosing to log in and and valuing that too. So, good point. Oh my gosh, Ricky and Leah, what a pleasure to speak with you both today. Really, we're we're so uh, we're so happy for you. We're so privileged that we get to learn from you in this incredible new book. Maybe it happened this way, and it'll be fun to, you know, be in conversation with the book itself and say, "Okay, maybe it happened this way," and then how can I think about ways it happened in other ways? And and that's just so exciting that you invite us into conversation with you. And I'm sure we'll we'll have some of our readers write to us and let us know what their reactions to your book is. So where can we, A, where do you recommend we find your book? And, you know, where can our listeners reach out to you if they have questions about the book, about, you know, anything related to something you've said today?
0: Well, I just want to, I don't have so much of a professional web presence yet. When I do, I'm sure if you are in in, in touch with uh, Leah on professional uh, spaces, you'll be able to find me but I am otherwise not super findable yet.
3: Okay, thanks. And uh, so as far as our book, we really want people to support their local independent bookstores, which you can either do by going there and ordering our book because likely it's not actually on the shelves, but that also lets people know that it exists. And if you are somebody who doesn't like to leave the house to buy your books, um, you can go to bookshop.org and you can pick which bookstore you'd like to support in purchasing the book. So, and then your local bookstore gets a cut, which is great. Or whichever bookstore you choose, you can choose a bookstore on the other side of the world. And you can find me at learachelberkowitz.com. I am on all the social medias as at Rabbi LRB at the social media, not social medias. And uh, I don't know how many of those social media are still going to exist by the time you hear this, um, but that's where you can find me.
2: Yes. Or if we'll still be on said social media, which yes. is another thing. Yes.
1: Got it. We will do our best to make sure that all of the different books and authors and things that we've referenced in this episode, and all of those um, websites and social media tags. Etc. will all be in our show notes. So listeners, if you are trying to um, remember all those details, uh, you don't have to. They'll be in the show notes.
2: Yay. Thank you so much.
1: Thank Thank you. you. What a joy. Be well. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Women Rabbis Talk.
2: We'd like to thank Seth Lindenman for tech and sound support.
1: Our music is by Aviva Chernick and Jaffa Road.
2: Women Rabbis Talk is self-edited and self-produced, and we hope to one day have some help with that. If you'd like to support us,
1: please use the links in our
2: episode notes. You can also follow those links to check out all of our
1: awesome swag and merch. Please remember to rate, review, and share, 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 so that others can find this podcast and enjoy it too.
2: Toda Rabah! <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs>